you don't mind, let's be turning our Bibles, please, to John chapter 1. I appreciate the work that Greg has put into helping put together the liturgy for today. As you said to you yesterday in the email that you would have received last evening, we uh, try twice a year to have a week of prayer emphasis. We've done it in different ways over time. Usually we give you a kind of a prayer guide to take home, and there's some sort of set prayers for the day or some passages to read for a week. Uh, in times past, we've had some prayer gatherings on the Saturday at the end of the week of prayer. We wanted to do something a little bit different this year and really focus our week of prayer on um, God's mission in the world and our part to play in that. Greg is going to do our closing today, and he'll explain to you a bit more about how you might make this a week of prayer emphasis, even though we're not giving you a guide. So he'll outline a few ideas we have for you in private time with your families and small groups and so forth. So he'll mention that to you in a bit. Before I go on, I do want to mention one thing that I talked about last week, and then I'll probably mention it again next week. But we are in need of one more kids' church teacher. We have one more section to fill so we have good balance with our teachers and so they can be in here on a good rotation as well and not always be back with the kids. As I said to you last week, it's a really critically important ministry we have. As you know, we have so many children in our church, and it's a really critical ministry to make sure that they are learning about their God on a level that they understand so we can reach not only their minds but their hearts as well. So if you're not plugged into a ministry or looking for something else and thinking about how you might employ your gifts, I encourage you to think about whether or not that might be a good fit for you, and Tom and Mary can help you if you have any questions about that. I've been trying out a new analogy on my family, and I want to see if it works with you, okay? Um, the, the longer I shepherd, the longer I do discipleship and counseling, which is, you know, it's most of what I do. It's what you guys want me to do. The more I am convinced that people are not really that complex. Every once, every once in a while you run into people and they'll say something like, you know, people are so complex and they're very difficult and their psyches are very complex and it's hard to deal with. I don't, I don't think that's true. The, the more I, I help people with problems, the less convinced I am that people are complex. Now, people are, are varied. People are multi-layered. But each time you get beneath a new layer with people, it's the same thing you saw in the previous layer. Now, it may manifest itself a bit differently, but the same struggles they had in the previous layer, if you think of people kind of like an onion, and I have to give credit to Shrek for this analogy, uh, so I'm tweaking it a little bit. You know, it, it's the same thing layer by layer. P- people are not really that complex, people are fragile. Most people in one way or another are, are hurting. Even people who've had the easiest lives with the best parents and the best marriages and you know, the most pristine kids who wear stuff from the gap all the time, I mean, even they're hurting. I'm convinced that most people, even those who have pretty good marriages and supposedly pretty good friendships, are pretty lonely. I think if you were to get most of us alone in a room and ask us those questions and we were honest and vulnerable, I think most people would say in one way or another they're hurting. They're fearful and they're lonely. But beneath all of that, there are some very basic things that are universally true about every person. Whether they had the worst of childhoods or the best. Whether they've had the most peaceful and loving marriages or whether they've had one of the worst. Whether they have a multiplicity of kids or whether they faced infertility. 
whether they have plenty of money or whether they have none at all. I think there are some very basic things about humanity that are universal. I think at the base of humanity, there is an underlying fear for all of us. Does anybody love me? Will I ever really change? What will happen to me, not just tomorrow, but a year from now? Will people stay beside me? What about the things that I've done? What about my guilt? How can I possibly bear this shame? I think in our quiet moments, those are the kind of things that rattle around in our heads. And perhaps we mistake complexity in humanity because we have a multivaried way of dealing with those voices and we push them away. And so therefore, the way that we push those voices down manifests itself sort of differently for different people. But I think underlying all of us is a fear And I think underlying most of us is a pride, and fear and pride are hard to kill. And I think that pride and fear are inextricably linked together. Let me explain that to you. When you fear, you are basically showing, even though you don't necessarily see it on the surface, that you think you can control your destiny. Perhaps you're upset about your past. Perhaps you're not satisfied with the present. You're not sure how the future will work out. And we have a tendency as humans to try to whitewash the past, control the present, and manipulate the future. And subtly, even though this may again not seem so on the surface, there is a pride that underlies all of those emotions. And what we end up becoming very prone to do is trying to control our environment because we want to suppress the fear. We want to keep the voices down. Anxiety drives us crazy. Loneliness and fear worries us and bothers us and freaks us out. But subtly, and again perhaps hard to detect, is an innate pride that we think that we are in control. This goes all the way back to the garden. Satan knew exactly what to tempt God's people with. He was the opposer of all things holy and all things good. And he believed in his irrational rage that he could hurt God, he could diminish the glory of God if he could hurt God's people. And he tapped into something in Adam and Eve. And he got them to fear. And even more subtly, he got to their pride, or he got to the thing that triggered pride. And ever since, all the children of the first parents have been exactly the same. Our first parents, after the first manifestation of their Pride began to fear. That's why they ran away from God. Our first parents, after the first manifestation of their pride, tried to cover up with self-righteousness. That's why they tried to clothe themselves. Our first parents blame-shifted, blamed one another rather than owning their sin. Our first parents were hopelessly lost because pride infected their hearts 
And it didn't take very long for it to infiltrate every nook and cranny of their existence. It was immediate. It was thorough. It was tragic. They were wrecked. And that's true for us today. As we look at the world around us, it is gripped in darkness in which prideful, fearful, manipulative people are scrambling all the time trying to make life work, afraid of God, afraid of one another, afraid of themselves. And frankly, even for those of us who have come to the light, we still find these emotions, we still hear those voices Because, again, humanity, when it really comes down to it, whether you're in Africa or Asia or the United States, or whether you lived in the first century A.D. or the Middle Ages or today, fear is the same because we are all prideful people who stumble in the darkness. But you see, God knew that, and God was not surprised by any of that, and he has brought a remedy In fact, the remedy that God promised, he promised as soon as pride, fear, and manipulation entered the world. He came right to the prideful, the fearful, and the manipulative, and he spoke words of peace to them. And he promised them that redemption would come. In the midst of their pride, their fear, and the manipulation, there was an overriding promise that light would come into the darkness. And as we've been learning together in the book of Genesis, that's what he's doing. He is beginning to pierce the darkness with his light. And one day, of course, we know that he would send the light of the world, the seed of the woman, to rescue those trapped in darkness. And so we gather together today as the people of the light, in whom the darkness is being dispelled and overcome We know that we are responsible to not only appreciate and worship the light of the world, but to take the message of his light to the darkness that they might become different as well. And so today as we focus on prayer, specifically in regard to engaging with God and his mission of redemption, I want us to look together in John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18, a critically important text And not just understand what it says, but understand how we might take this text and employ it in our prayers. I think we're all pretty similar. Sometimes when we get ramped up to pray, we set aside a morning perhaps, or we get up early and we drink our coffee and we're raring to go and we get into our quiet place and we start to pray. And if we have enough energy, you know, we're not nodding off, we start to pray. And a lot of us just sort of start praying the repetition and the sort of empty things and we don't really know what to say and and it gets frustrating after a while. One of the remedies for that is to learn to pray the way that God would want you to pray and he's given you his revelation. What I'm saying to you is if you want to learn how to pray in a way that you know God will be pleased with, pray his word back to him. If you pray his word back to him, I guarantee you, you will be praying according to his will. And if we want to be a people that assaults the throne room of heaven, and he is not bothered by that, he delights in that. If we want the one who sits on the throne in heaven to make his glory known and to dispel the darkness, then we must become a people of prayer. 
if we want this community to be pierced by the light, if we want our nation, if we want our globe to have its darkness dispelled, only Jesus can do that. But he does it through the agency of his people, and he does it through the medium of prayer. Let me say that again. Only Jesus can dispel the darkness that exists in the heart of every man and woman. He will do it through his people as they pray to him. So we are going to talk today about the mission of Jesus and his people. I'm going to outline this in not a linear fashion because I want to look at this text as something that you will, by the end of our time together today and hopefully throughout this coming week, it'll be something that you meditate upon so that it sort of begins to form the fabric of your thinking, the way that you look at your Savior, the one who has rescued the world, is rescuing the world, and that you will understand yourself through it and you'll understand the world around you. And that as it forms the fabric of your thinking, you will use the basic thoughts, the basic theological principles of it to inform the way that you pray to the one who alone is going to rescue this world through you as you pray. So first of all today, we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is worthy of our adoration. We're going to look at four basic points throughout this section in John chapter 1 today that will lead us to various elements of prayer so that by the time we finish today, we will have outlined a basic way to pray through this passage. And I want you not only to get it down in your notes, but I want you to actually go and use it in your prayer time. So first of all today, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is worthy of our adoration. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He's personifying the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A clear affirmation of the deity of Christ. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you remember, as we were going through Genesis chapter 1, we referred here to John chapter 1. I made the point to you that before God made any of the stars, there was light shining. How do you explain that? I submitted to you through the articulation of that passage that I think what was going on there is that the second person of the Trinity provided light to the yet unformed substance of the world. I think John chapter 1 helps prove that. I think the fact that by the time you get to the end of John's revelation, in Revelation chapter 21, there is no more need for sun in the new heavens and new earth because God is there and the Lamb is there and they are the lamp for all those who worship them. So it's interesting, at the beginning of the Bible, there's light without stars. At the end of the Bible, which depicts to us the end of time, there is light without stars. How is that possible? Because God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus our Savior, is light. In some perhaps very physical way, I don't know how to explain that to you. I think a lot of this truly is metaphorical. 
But it seems to be a bit more than that as well. John is focusing more, I believe, on the metaphor than the physical nature of Jesus' light. Nevertheless, we believe in some way or another that Jesus uniquely is the light of the world. That is why in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus can say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is speaking of goodness, of revelation, of transformation here. But he can say this because he's always been the light of the world in every possible sense. So Jesus is worthy of our adoration. It's interesting, as you read Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel, Mark doesn't really do this. Mark just gets right to the point in his gospel. It's the shortest gospel, just gets right to the action. But in Matthew and Luke's gospel, you have the, the incarnation of Jesus first explained by his birth. Some people say, well, John doesn't talk about the incarnation just like Mark doesn't talk about the incarnation. But that's not true. What John does is he actually goes back further than Matthew and Luke. And rather than talking about Jesus becoming a little baby born in a manger in a stable, he goes even further back, way back to the beginning and even beyond that. God was never made. God never did not exist, which is completely mind-blowing. But the one who is the light of the world has always been and always will be. He is the self-revelation of God. That's why he's called the Word. In the beginning, God spoke the world into existence. He did that through the agency of his Son. We know that because the New Testament tells us that. God redeems through his Word. God blesses through his Word. God proves himself to be himself through his word in various ways. I am faithful. I am kind. I am gracious. I am just. God has spoken into existence everything that is, and he explains those who exist what he's like. And as Jesus, the word, came into the world, he was the one who revealed the Father, the one who gave life, the one who brought the dead back to life. He was the revelation from God And it makes sense that he's the revelation from God. He's the interpreter of God. He's the revealer of God because he is God. He has always been with the Father in perfect relation as a member of the Trinity, the Godhead. But he is himself God, the second person of the Trinity. And who better to explain the one who made the world? The one who rules the world, the one who will judge the world, the one who provides grace for the world, than God himself. God did not merely send an angel, a messenger. God sent himself. In verse 4, John is clear that in Jesus was life. Everything that has ever been is or ever will be, comes through Jesus. He not only creates, he sustains. And the life that he provides is the light of man. It's their hope. Down in verse 9, John says, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. That is to say, everyone that has ever been has been enlightened by Jesus, the life giver. In some way or another, his image is stamped on them. And in one way or another, even if they are not his people, they are blessed by the one who gives them life and breath. 
In verse 5, John says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's comparing the morality of the one who is the second person of the Trinity, the word, the self-revealer, over against the domain of darkness. Jesus is light. The world is filled with darkness. So Jesus is worthy of our adoration. And as you read this text, I want that to be something that you can then go pray back to God. And specifically to Jesus himself. Think about what this says about him. He is without peer. There is no one like him. He is worthy of adoration because he is very God of very God. He is the Almighty. He is the uncreated one. He is the one who self-exists. He is the one who brings about everything that we see. He is the one who is full of light. Nothing can overcome him. And not only this, he has brought his light into the darkness, though he did not need to do so. Jesus is worthy of our adoration. If we are to turn this text into a prayer, I think that's where we begin. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, Our God who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You begin with adoration. And John does that here in this text, and I think this can easily be employed in our prayers. As you read this text, you come away with the thought that that this one who is your Savior is to be adored. Not only this, Jesus is due our gratitude. In verse 9, John says, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, John the Baptist, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. He preexisted. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What John says about Jesus in this text should lead us to adoration. What John says about Jesus in this text should lead us to gratitude. How may the darkness be dispelled? Only through Jesus. And that is why, thirdly, Jesus alone can rescue those lost in darkness. So Jesus is worthy of adoration, yes. He is the holy God. He is the one who gives life and light to all men. But he is not just a distant God. He is a God who has come near. And the incarnation of Jesus, the one who is full of grace and truth, the grace which supersedes the law, which could never satisfy, the one who overcomes rebellion, the one who brings faith to the hearers, the one who dispels the darkness of every human's heart, he alone can rescue those lost in darkness. So we pray in adoration to the one who is worthy of our worship. And then we live with gratitude. We pray with gratitude 
to the one who has come to rescue us. I said to you a bit ago that when it really comes down to it, I think that people are not that complex. They're multi-layered for sure, but every new layer of the onion you get through kind of stinks the same. The same stink as you go down. But every layer has to be unfolded, and every layer has to be injected with hope and truth. One of the things that you find as you uncover each layer of your heart and as you watch each layer of everyone else's heart around you is that when it really comes down to it, it's the same kind of stuff. Your pride keeps coming out, and perhaps in multifaceted ways, which again may explain the complexity that some people mistake, but it's kind of the same thing, and it's kind of, kind of hard to notice. It's kind of hard to deal with once you notice it, and it's hard to accept once you've dealt with it. But when it really comes down to it, As you see Jesus uncovering each layer of your heart, exposing the same old stuff, though it manifests itself in different ways, what you're finding is that he's exposing your darkness. It's interesting if you think about it. For those of you who were were born again as young children, who were converted as children, it's hard to remember for a lot of us a time where where darkness was, was truly the dominating thing. Like you didn't have any light at all. Because you've always known some measure of light. A lot of you are like that. If you look back, you think to yourself, I've never really known a day where there was not a lot of light in my life. For those of you who were converted later as adults, you remember. You remember what it was like to be dominated by darkness. But I think subtly, even those perhaps, those of us who perhaps were converted as young children, as we detect the remaining darkness, we call that indwelling sin, we get a little taste of what it would be like if we, if we didn't have the light. I'm convinced that if Jesus had not invaded my darkness, I'm totally convinced without any doubt that I would not be married. I would have ruined at least one marriage by now. I would be a horrible father whose kids hated him. I would be greedy and out for money, and I would want everybody to love me. And I would do whatever it took to step on people to make sure that I got ahead. And that's just the beginning. I know I would be like that. Because I know the things that I struggle with now. So even though I was converted as a young child and I've never known really anything but some light, the indwelling sin that remains makes me know, at least to a degree, what it would be like if I had no light at all. And you know what that does? As each new layer of stink is revealed... It makes me see that I desperately need Jesus. See, what do people in the darkness who do not yet know Jesus need? Let's be really deeply theological for a moment. They need Jesus. For those in whom the darkness yet has not been fully dispelled, what do they need? They need Jesus too. What keeps people trapped in the darkness? It's their pride which may manifest itself in fear and manipulation, but deep down it's pride. They don't want to come to the light. I've said to you so many times that the main reason people reject the gospel of grace, the good news of grace, is not that they cannot intellectually comprehend it. That was a little little convoluted. Let me explain a little bit more simply. I don't think the reason that people reject the gospel is they don't get what a free gift really is. I don't think that's why they reject the gospel at all. 
I think the primary reason that people reject the gospel is because they don't want it. They're so prideful that they want to contribute something. The hymn we sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, kind of gets to the heart of what it means to really come to Jesus. To realize that in our wrathful, prideful rage, that we just can't do it on our own. And there must be a breaking point where you come to the grips of the fact that you just you have nothing to offer. And that is so frustrating. I don't think it's primarily ignorance that keeps those who have heard the gospel from salvation. I think it's primarily pride. They think it's better. And they've lived so long, so many of them scrambling around trying to make life work, ignoring their pride, not diagnosing it for what it is, that they can't even really tell anymore. And they're trapped in the darkness, and they don't know it. And when you tell them that they are, they don't want to hear it. But for those of us who have been rescued from the darkness... Are we not to be the most thankful people in the whole world? This should lead you away from being a scorekeeper. Think about it. The parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18 is a compelling passage in our Bibles. And every time I read it, it gets to the heart of how I feel about everybody around me. It's so easy for me to keep score with those who have hurt me. But this isn't clear in the text. That the one who had been given, forgiven so much who then goes out and tries to exact the debt out of the one who owed him comparably little was incredibly evil because he had forgotten how much he had been forgiven. And he was a scorekeeper. All the wrongs that had been done to him, he was going to rain down his wrath on those people and yet disregard the great wrath that he was owed and yet had been forgiven. Because the master was so gracious. It's exhausting to be a scorekeeper. What you end up doing is you end up looking at everybody around you and you compare and you contrast and you doubt and you gossip and you worry and you fear and you hate and you rage. And that's an exhausting way to live. But as you look at your Savior, is he not the most gracious one that has ever been? The one who invaded your darkness, your willing darkness, where you were trapped in your pride. And invading it, he has dispelled it and is dispelling it. And one day will fully dispel it. And one day you will bask in the light of his very presence. And as we read a bit ago from Revelation 5 when Greg prayed, we will not be keeping a score anymore at that point because we will be so grateful that the score has been settled by the one that we are worshiping. How do you stop keeping score? Be a thankful person. And primarily the most important thing to be thankful for is to be thankful for the one who has come and invaded your darkness. Notice in verse 12 that anybody who is willing to receive him, 
Not just believe certain things about him, but to receive him, to, to stake your claim on him, to, to realize he's your only resource for hope. You get to become children of God. That's the best thing ever. There's nothing that can compare to that. But by what means has that come? Well, according to verse 13, your resistance, your unbelief is overcome by the will of God. You didn't convince yourself to become a child of God. You didn't convince yourself to believe. You didn't convince yourself to leave the darkness for the light. You were comfortably numb. You liked it. But you know what? God in his sovereign grace has stooped in the person of his son and drawn you to himself. And should you not, should we not be the most thankful people that ever existed? So the mighty God of eternity is worthy of our adoration. He's due our gratitude. And this leads us to this third thought that Jesus alone, the one who is worthy of adoration and due our gratitude, he's the only one that can rescue those around you. He's the only one who could have rescued you. And for your lost mother, father, brother, sister, friends, co-workers, peers, neighbors, he's their only hope too. Every layer of stink that Jesus uncovers and addresses and shows you a better way, he's the only one who can do that for the people around you. And you know what? You have something to say. As you deal with your gossiping co-worker who is so frustrated with their inadequacies that all they can do is compare themselves to people around them every day at work, you know what their problem is? Same problem you have. It's pride. You can speak to them because you have something to say to them because you're the same as them. Your mother, who worries about life and constantly is fretting, is marked by anxiety and depression. You know what her problem is? Fundamentally? She's frustrated that she can't control her environment. She's prideful. You know what? So are you. You have something to say to her. Your atheistic classmate, friend, neighbor, you know what they need? Ultimately, a little bit of apologetics, probably, you know, be a good apologist, know some of the arguments for the existence of God, sure. But you know why they're trapped in that? You know why? Because they're prideful. They believe fundamentally they can make life work on their own. You know what you can tell them? you're afflicted by pride too and you take them to Jesus a wife that is enraged at her husband a husband that is indifferent toward his wife children that do not want to obey their parents co-workers that do not like to do what their bosses tell them people who are afraid of their lack of money or their newly discovered disease You know what's at the heart of all those things? Fear and manipulation, which truly is undergirded by the root of pride. People want to control their environment. They want to control their destiny, and they can't. The same Jesus who is rescuing you from your darkness can rescue them as well. And so as you look at your neighbor, your mother, your friend, you know what you need to tell them? 
that they need Jesus, just like you do. And you know what you do when you leave them? When you get back in your car or go back to your cubicle or back through your front door, you know what you do? You beg the one who has dispelled your darkness to dispel theirs. So you worship the Savior in adoration. You thank him for dispelling your darkness and you beg him, you beg him to dispel theirs. This text leads us to that conclusion. Jesus is the greatest missionary there has ever been. And the mission that we see beginning to unfold here in John chapter 1 had been promised way back at the very beginning of the existence of humanity. It was the perfectly planned mission. And now he shows up and he begins to go after it. But he left a mission for us, and that's our fourth point today. Jesus calls us and enables us to witness of his grace. The verses we have not yet read lie in verses 6 through 8. John the Apostle writes about John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8 when he says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The ensuing verses after our text today talk about the testimony of John. John made it very clear that Jesus was the pre-existent one. He was first in rank. He adored Jesus, who, by the way, was his cousin. It's kind of interesting. Not only that, he calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, verse 36. So he adored his cousin Savior, and he trusted his cousin Savior as the one who atoned for the sins of the world. John was a witness to the light, the one who was full of grace and truth, the one who would come to those trapped in the domain of darkness and loose them and bring them into his kingdom of light. John gave his life over to joining God on mission. He was born for that very purpose. His birth was prophesied. He was to be a special child. Seemingly in the womb, the Holy Spirit indwelt him and gave him new birth. I don't know how to explain that. And for all of his life, he was dedicated to God, giving up everything that he had to join Jesus on mission. Not because he was an odd ascetic who liked to wear camel hair clothing and eat locusts and wild honey but because he was willing to give up all the things the world had to offer because he saw a surpassing treasure. The surpassing treasure was not to be well thought of. Jesus himself called John a great man. None had ever been who were greater than John, according to Jesus. He wasn't seeking fame. He did not want things published about him. In fact, he died a martyr's death for proclaiming the truth of the kingdom of God. But he saw God himself and his redeeming grace as surpassing treasure. And John delighted in proclaiming this message of grace to all who would hear. Most of us will not go live in a wilderness by a river, baptizing people in camel hair clothing, eating bugs. You'd be on the news probably they would lock you up. But how does this show up in our context? John gave his best, his gifts, all he had, 
for the sake of the kingdom. Most of you are not going to do that on a vocational basis. But all of us, in one way or another, should be dedicated to this. For those who have been blessed by the second person of the Trinity, the one who is worthy of all adoration, the one who has come and dispelled our darkness, the one who rescued us, the one who is worthy to receive the reward of his sufferings, we should want to tell the world about him. As you look at your neighbors and your friends and your family members who do not have any hope, Jesus is all they've got. Jesus is the only one who can expose the darkness. Jesus is the only one who can get down to the root of why people are like they are. As I sit across from a couple who is struggling through a marriage with a wife who does not trust her husband because he has not cared for her like he should, made worse by the fact that she's never trusted any man in her life and her husband's just another example of that. She's fighting him in pride, trying to make life work on her own. As I see the same husband frustrated with his wife who has never respected him a day in her life, who never does what he says, who can never seem to please her quite enough and has grown to the point that he doesn't even hear her anymore. Her voice just drones on. As I sit across and they don't need clever psychology. She needs Jesus, the one who cannot and will not fail. He needs Jesus, the one who cannot and will not fail. As I look at my children when I address their sin, who try to cover up and deflect and explain and justify, you know what I tell them? I don't tell them just to do better. I tell them that it's okay to fail and okay to admit because their righteousness does not subsist in who they are or what they've done. Their righteousness comes from Jesus so they can admit who they are. When your friend fails you, doesn't show up when you want them to, gossips against you, doesn't pay attention to you the way that you want them to? Why do you hold them to such a high standard when your Savior doesn't and he forgives you and yet you will not? What do you need in those moments? What does your friend need? You need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus is your life and your light and your friend's life and your light. And whenever your friend comes and seeks to reconcile you, look at them through eyes of grace and you say to your friend, I delight in forgiving you because Jesus has forgiven me. I need Jesus to forgive. You have needed Jesus to come and ask for forgiveness. You see, in every facet of life, in one way or another, we need the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus every single day and every facet of life. It is the salve that heals every wound. It is the remedy for every problem. It is the solution to all of our struggles. Perhaps, and I say this a little bit in a tongue-in-cheek sense, when somebody comes to you with a problem, you should say, Jesus and they say, no, no, you don't need to listen to me. No, Jesus. And it should get to the point that we all become relatively reflexive with that, right? 
that we're able to self-remedy a bit, when we detect the, the pride that underlies most of our sin, we can say, I don't have to live that way. I've been given the grace of Jesus. Why do I need to live pridefully? Why do I need to cover up? Why do I need to hide? Why do I need to blame shift? Why do I need to keep score? Jesus has given me everything. As I look at the world around me and all of its multitude of problems, there's one basic problem. They're seeking to live their own way. And they need Jesus. So I call all of us to become more reflexive. It should become more instinctive, more natural for us to diagnose all of our struggles, all of our fears, all of our pride with one simple solution. That is the grace of Jesus, the self-existent one, the one who has rescued us from darkness. He is everyone's hope. And it should be because of all he has done for you that you want to take this message to all those around you who have no hope, but who can find it in Jesus. I say to you, it will only be true that you will do this if you are finding your own hope in him. I think perhaps one of the most fundamental things that will lead to effective evangelism, disciple-making, is for you to appreciate your own. Think about that for a moment. If you are basking in the reality that Jesus has overcome, is overcoming, and one day will fully overcome your darkness. And just face it for what it is. Don't try to run away from it. That's what light does. Light exposes darkness. That's scary. It is. But because Jesus is so gracious, let him do it. Let him expose it. Let him bring it out into the light. All the stuff, all the pride, all the lust, all the ego... All all the things that drive you away from him, let him just bring it out into his light and let him expose it because he's better. And when you see the darkness for what it is and how much better he is, how much of a better life he has offered you, then it will lead you to gratitude. It will lead you to trust in him alone. It will lead you to be a witness to those who are yet trapped in the same darkness. So here's how this prayer goes. Jesus, you alone are worthy of adoration. You have always been and you always will be. You are the self-revelation from God. You have given light and life to all men. Nothing can conquer you. Jesus, I am so thankful that you have come into this world and dispelled my darkness. I did not deserve it. I would have been like the Jews who rejected you, but you overcame my resistance. You took on flesh so that you could understand me and redeem me. You have given me grace and truth. The law would only condemn, but you have brought me back to the Father's side. You have made me a child of God. I'm so thankful. And just like you overcame my darkness, you can overcome my neighbor's my parents, my childs, my co-workers. You, you can overcome theirs. And now I submit to you as a witness because I'm so overcome with your beautiful grace. Please enable me to be your mouthpiece as a witness to go tell of your grace to the world around me. So we just took this passage, which is critically important to our faith, and we turned it into a prayer. 
Jesus gets glory through it because you're adoring him. Jesus is blessed through it because you're thanking him. You are blessed because you recognize the source of true delight. And the world gets blessed because then you go out as an enabled, empowered witness to proclaim the light of Jesus. And he even gets more glory because that's what he's due. Which brings us back to the beginning of our prayer today. When Greg prayed, we praise the Lamb who sits on the throne, who is worthy of all admiration. So that's how you take the Bible, study it, understand it, and turn it back into a prayer. And do you not think that those of us who care so much about the world around us yet trapped in darkness... Don't you think that God cares way more? He created the world. Follow me, follow me sort of logically, sequentially. He created the world, knowing it would fall, having pre-planned that he would rescue it. Then he acted upon it. And then he brought us into the world to make sure the mission kept going forward. Think about that. That's what he's done. He made the world, knowing it would fall, pre-planned to rescue it, enacted the plan by sending Jesus, and then sent us to be the emissaries, the witnesses who would keep the plan going. That's what God's done. That's where we find ourselves today. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These are our marching orders. We rest in delight in the one who has given us everything. But the ones who have been given everything now have a chance to radiate, to reflect that light back to all who will hear. You know as well as I do that you cannot make a person hear. You just can't. You cannot make a person receive. But the one who gave them life, the one who enlightens everyone who comes into the world, the one who can overcome the darkness, he can do that just like he did for you. So by the grace of God, may we adore the Savior. May we be thankful for him. May we remember that he alone can dispel the darkness. And may we, in that knowledge and by his power, go into the world as witnesses of this grace.